I invite you to turn with me to page 555 of the Book of Praise, where we find the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 40, explaining the meaning of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. So, Lord's Day 40, we'll read that together. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that He hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that He regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, He commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward Him, to protect Him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. In response to the, the preaching, we'll sing about the ultimate act of love for one's neighbor, the act of the Lord Jesus giving up His life for those who were His enemies. Hymn 25, the stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, Last time, we dealt with the first neighbor command, the fifth commandment, first one dealing with our neighbors, and we found that it was all about honoring authority, including the civil government. Well, today, in the sixth commandment, we come across the second neighbor command, do not murder, and here, too, we find a link with the civil government even a direct one, as the Catechism points out, answer 105, therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. That would be a reference to capital punishment, that is to putting to death, the government putting to death citizens who themselves have murdered someone else. So on God's behalf, as God's servant, the civil government has the duty to protect human life by holding accountable those who unlawfully take human life, even to the point of executing a murderer. Now, it's not my intention to spend a lot of time on the civil government in this sermon. We did a fair bit of that last week, but I would ask you, brothers and sisters, as we go through these following neighbor commandments that deal with human life, sixth commandment, sexuality, the seventh, property and goods, the eighth commandment, and also the command to speak the truth, number nine, that you would keep the, the task of the civil government in the back of your mind. 
I hope to circle back to the civil government when we come to the ninth commandment in particular, but just consider that the civil authorities here in Canada and in many Western countries, they make pronouncements, they formulate laws about the treatment of all these things, human life, the way marriage is defined and solemnized and dissolved in divorce, the way gender is defined, the way personal property and money is handled and taxed. And the government also demands truth spoken in a court of law. So the government has a role in all these neighbor commands. But what should we think and how should we as Christians respond when our governments themselves choose not to act as faithful servants of God? What should we then do? What do we do when the government chooses not to speak truth? When they actually enact laws based, that are based on lies, like they recently did with Bill C-4. It's based on the lie that same-sex attraction and another lie identifying as the opposite gender to your biological sex, the lie that these things are good and natural and commendable, and on account of that lie, this law is in place making it illegal to counsel against such behaviors. What are we Christians to do when faced with a law based on a lie? Civil governments at all levels are doing that. They're making laws that go against the truth of God's Word. Think of the recent assisted suicide law. Now you can help a person take away his own life. It used to be a crime. Or the failure to, for the government to make even a single law that protects the weakest humans in their mother's own wombs, allowing the merciless slaughter of those babies by so-called doctors. I want you to begin to think about this, brothers and sisters. Our, our governments are not neutral. Scripture says that we are in a spiritual war. There are spiritual powers fighting against us Christians, Satan and his array of demons, and they will use any earthly power they can to fight against us and take us down. Are then our Canadian governments being co-opted by Satan to wage war against the church? And if so, what should we do about it? I'd like you to ponder those questions for a few weeks, for it's fast becoming one of the biggest issues of our time, and we need to be ready to deal with it. We need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, for today, for the sixth commandment, we're going to focus our attention on what God asks of us when He commands, do not murder. The positive side of that commandment, as the catechism also states, quoting the Lord Jesus, is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Which neighbor? All our neighbors, as that is captured by the Lord Jesus in Luke 6, which we read, and summarized by the catechism in answer 7, 107, we are to do good to everyone that we come across, even to our enemies. That'll be our theme this afternoon. 
as I bring you this word of God, follow Jesus in doing good even to your enemy. We'll see why we are to care about others and how we are to care for others. Well, it's pretty clear from Jesus' words in Luke 6 that He wants us to love everyone, even those who hate us. That is what an enemy is, a person who has a beef with you. They don't like you for some reason. They, they actually wish bad things for you. They would want something bad to happen to you. That person is your enemy. Now, from our side, we are not permitted to hold ill will toward anyone. We're not permitted to wish for their downfall on, on any kind of personal basis. The Bible forbids us to hold grudges. It forbids us to have bitterness in our hearts toward a neighbor. So Jesus is not implying that you and I are free to be an enemy to other people, not at all. In fact, it is to be a source of grief when despite the fact that we've tried to be kind, like David was doing, right, in Psalm 35, you probably follow the flow of thought there, David, David was upset when his, when his enemies were sick. He prayed for them. He, he tried to visit them. He did good things for them. And when they turned around later on and started to persecute him, it was a source of great grievance for him. Well, that's the way we need to act toward our enemies, toward those who refuse to be peaceful toward us. We need to be kind toward them, exactly in the way that the Lord Jesus did with the Pharisees. Jesus Himself only ever did good to the people uh, that He was ministering to, and He, he taught Israel the, the truth of God's Word to everyone, including the Pharisees. But the more Jesus taught and the more Jesus healed, the more jealous the Pharisees became and the more they hated Him. They became His enemies. He was not their enemy, but they were His enemies. And yet, despite that, Jesus loved the Pharisees, as we'll see in a few moments. But let's ask a more basic question. Why? Why should we care about other people at all? Why should we care even more about those who hate us? I mean, this is a hard thing to do, right? Being kind, being nice to everyone we come into contact with, that does not come naturally. So we need to have a very good reason. We need to be clear-headed to understand why it is that God wants us to do this so that we will set out to do it. And the first part of the answer is because every single person we meet is one of God's creations. Good or bad, whether they're wicked or righteous, whether they know God exists or not, every human being has been created by the God that you and I love. The God who first loved us, remember. The God who came to us in our rebellious state and rescued us from our hate-filled hearts and sin in Jesus Christ. So, out of a very basic reverence for this Creator God, our God, and His handiwork, I need to always respect His creatures and show human beings, their, uh, show them care. 
Now, we do this already on a human level quite naturally enough. If your mom, for example, is, is good at making crafts, and you come home one day and, and see the kitchen table full of new crafts that she's made, you'll be careful not to throw your bag down on the table. You'll be careful not to mess up the crafts because they're mom's handiwork. And if one of those crafts had fallen on the floor by accident, you would be quick to pick it up and set it gently back on the table. Why? Because you love your mom. You might yourself not be all that crazy about crafts. You might not think that crafts are all that special. You might not be one of those crafty people, but because you know the person who made those crafts and you love that person, your mom, you will take great care with her handiwork. Well, how much more than with one of God's creations? And there's even more yet to it, for not only is every human being a creation of the God we love and revere, but every human being has been made in His image. Humans are not animals, despite what the world may tell you. They're not descended from apes or any other kind of creature. They are human beings were created separately, Adam, Eve, and from them the whole human race has descended. And certainly we should care for the animals God has created, but we should treat especially well, with great regard, every human being. Again, whether they know it or not, they have been created in the image of God. That image in humans has certainly been perverted in us sinful human beings, and humans on their own have no holiness or righteousness in them, yet just as God says after the flood in Genesis 9 to Noah that man is still made in God's image, we have to respect that. In fact, that's actually the reason God gives there in Genesis 9 for why those who murder need to be put to death. God says this, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. That was the way God protected the sanctity of human life. You could kill an animal and be free from God's judgment, but you could not kill a human. So human beings are unique among all of God's creations, and we have, to, we have to honor their special status for the sake of the God we love. Even, even if those other people aren't very nice, we do it for the God we love. He made them with this wondrous quality of His image. He values them. He regards His own handiwork with esteem, even though... God does not turn a blind eye to their wickedness and evil. Remember what Scripture says of God just before He sent the flood to destroy the human race, Genesis 6. It's a very telling verse, verse 6 of that chapter. And the Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and the Lord's heart was filled with pain. He was grieved. And filled with pain. You don't feel grief unless you have first felt love, right? Your heart is not filled with pain toward a creature unless earlier it had been filled with delight toward that creature. 
God will absolutely judge the human race and will most certainly cast into hell those who maintain their rebellion against God, but He will do it with a pained heart. As the Lord said in Ezekiel, He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from His way and live. That's obvious too, isn't it? From the way that God treats, that God acts toward all humanity right across the globe, showing them kindness and mercy so that they might yet repent, that they might yet turn to Him and find salvation. This is another reason why you and I should care for other human beings doing good even to those who do bad things to us because we desire, just like our Father in heaven desires, that all our neighbors would turn to Jesus. This is what Christ is getting at in Luke 6, which we read, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And so must we be kind. God's kindness to His enemies, you see, it has a, an evangelistic purpose. It has a gospel focus. God is giving them an opportunity to see and experience His goodness and be drawn to their Maker. Paul tells us about this in Acts 17. He's in the Areopagus, and he's addressing the, the Greek pagans. And he tells them, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one, one man, every nation of mankind, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, God is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul is saying much of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, God makes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the righteous and the wicked alike right around the globe. The Lord gives breath and health and food and so many other gifts to people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Why? So that they should seek their Creator, that they should find that not only is God good, but He is filled with grace and mercy and has provided for the forgiveness of all their sins in His Son, Jesus Christ. He, he wants them to come looking. This is what God wants. Is it what we want? How passionate are we to do good to all men, even to our enemies, so that they 
that they might possibly seek God, that they might come to know and love Jesus as Savior and Lord. Who are your enemies? You got enemies in your life? Maybe they're not as brutal as David's enemies. Maybe you've got a grouchy neighbor, can't get along with that neighbor, that neighbor's got some kind of beef against you, seems to have no use for you. Can you think of an act of kindness you could do toward that neighbor? Is someone on your bus or at school being a real jerk to you? How can you repay them good for their evil? Do you have somebody at work who mocks you for being a Christian? Do you have a boss who gets on your case and just seems to have it in for you? What about this? Will you pray for them tonight? Will you write their name on your prayer list and keep them in your prayers regularly? Pray for those who abuse you. Will you be extra kind and considerate to them? in the hope that the Holy Spirit will soften their hearts and turn them toward God. That's what we are to do. We are to follow Jesus, who showed kindness to His enemies, not the least of which was those Pharisees. People often mention that Jesus was a friend to the outcasts, to the poor, to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and He was. He visited among them. He wasn't afraid to mingle with them and spoke to them the gospel of salvation, healed their sick, and called them to repentance. But he did the same with the upper classes. He did the same for the synagogue rulers and even the Pharisees, who as a, a class looked down on him, despised him. Think of how Jesus healed the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Think of how he listened to the Jewish leaders and healed the centurion, the Roman centurion's son. The Romans were enemies. Or consider the passage we read in Luke 7, how Jesus accepted a dinner invitation from Simon the Pharisee. The Pharisees are renowned, right? We know this. They looked down on Jesus. They were opposed to Jesus. And Simon was really not an exception. For Luke tells us in chapter 7, verse 39, that Simon was inwardly mocking and judging Jesus for letting himself be touched by this woman, in all likelihood a prostitute, former prostitute. So he was thinking this in his mind, Luke tells us. Simon was. Yet Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, he would have known the heart of Simon, nevertheless accepted that dinner invitation. He went with this Pharisee, and he visited with the enemy in his home, and he even spoke a word of wisdom to Simon to try and draw him to salvation. Would you do that to one of your enemies? Knowing all that Jesus has done for you, knowing how he died for you, on the cross while you and I were still his enemies from this day forward will you treat those who treat you ill will you treat them like Jesus treated the Pharisee is there somebody in your life who if they 
invited you over today for coffee or dinner, that you would refuse. And in your mind, you think, I would never in a million years go to their house for coffee or dinner because of the, once, because of the way they treated me. Do you have scorn in your heart for one of God's creations, for someone who's made in the image of God, maybe even for a fellow Christian for whom Jesus died? Are there members in this very flock of God whom you would never think to invite over for fellowship, whom you would walk past in the parking lot and ignore and refuse to greet? Is there somebody here that meets that description? If those things are in your heart, you need to repent, my brother, my sister, today. Love your neighbor, all of them, no exceptions. Do good even to your enemy. That starts right where you are, in your family, in your congregation, in your community, in your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, wherever. In the strength of Christ's Spirit, do what Christ commands and love every neighbor as you love yourself. When we hear that word love, our first thought often is the emotion of liking somebody a lot. That's how it's typically used in our culture. Oh, I just love how that dress looks on you. Or I love that song, or that's, I, I love that car. Or she really loves that guy. She's head over heels in love. So we tend to think of love primarily as a feeling of when you are fond of someone or something. You enjoy a person's company. You really, really like them and you just want to hang around with them. I think that's why we are sometimes put off by Jesus' command to love our neighbor. Because when we start thinking about all the neighbors we come across, we start to realize, hey, I don't necessarily enjoy the company of all my neighbors. It's not that I hate them. I just don't enjoy the company of everybody. Is that a sin? Am I not loving them if I don't really, really like them? And what about enemies? What about people who hold a grudge against me and will barely give me the time of day? Realistically, how can I be expected to have a warm, fuzzy feeling of fondness toward them? Isn't it just unrealistic to love our enemies? Well, in the Bible, the concept of love is not first a feeling. It's first an action. Feelings of warmth and appreciation and liking someone can and should follow the action. But the first thing God asks of us is to act. He commands us to love. And the action of loving others amounts to caring for them despite whatever feelings you've got. Christ gives us some examples in Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. 
So doing good is the equivalent of loving them. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So we've got some helpful verbs there that are like synonyms or expansions of what it means to love. Do good. Bless. Pray for. You don't have to have a fuzzy feeling in your heart to do those things for others. When your neighbor needs help, you help him, regardless of your feelings. When your enemy needs assistance, when he's in a pickle, you assist him, even if you don't like him very much. You love him by doing good according to the need he has. The Apostle Paul gives us some more examples in Romans 12. He says there, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, Paul continues, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Action. Feed the hungry, the hungry enemy. Give the thirsty enemy something to drink. That's the love that Jesus is talking about. When your enemy does you a bad turn, our instinct is to do him one back, payback. But the Lord Jesus says, no payback. Do not do evil back to those who do evil to you. Overcome that evil by doing good to that person. Follow me, he says, in doing good even to your enemies. Consider Jesus there in the home of the Pharisee, Simon. He's dining in the home. He's accepted a dinner invitation of someone who has zero respect for him, who does not believe his claims of Messiah, who thinks he's a fraud. Jesus has to point out to Simon that Simon didn't even treat him with the basic hospitality of that culture. Simon failed to provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. Simon did not anoint the head of his guest, Jesus. Simon did not welcome Jesus with a kiss. That was all customary. Simon had very, very little regard for the Lord Jesus Christ, yet Jesus went into his home anyway. Jesus gave Simon, his enemy, his time. He gave him his fellowship. He gave him his wisdom. He offered him patience. Did you notice that? When this lady came in and started to weep at Jesus' feet and make a scene, and Simon clearly has no use for this lady and mocks, inwardly mocks both the woman and Jesus, Jesus could have just got up. He would have had every right to get up with this lady who had come in and, and, and left the house of this hypocrite Simon the Pharisee. He could have 
reprimanded Simon for his lack of love, his lack of respect, his lack of faith, his lack of humility, his lack of a lot of things, and Jesus could have rightfully stormed out of there with the the ex-prostitute. But he doesn't do any of that. He stays for lunch. He remains calm. And he goes the extra mile to, to reach, to at least try and reach Simon's heart with a parable. Jesus returned good for evil. Just as he had earlier done to the woman. Evidently, she was a sex worker in the city who at some earlier point had heard about Jesus and had heard his call to repent and believe. At some earlier point, she had already been cut to the heart about her sin and had repented. That becomes clear from verse 37. For when the woman learned that Jesus was going to dine at the Pharisee's house, she immediately came with an alabaster jar of perfume. In other words, she didn't come to learn what Jesus had to say. She came instead to express her gratitude for what she had already learned about His message. Her actions at the feet of Jesus are the actions of one who has been forgiven all her sins. She's expressing gratitude. And this woman had indeed led a life of sin. Until recently, she had been living openly as an enemy of God, a sinner. But Jesus came for sinners, for enemies. Sinners like this humbled lady, yes, but sinners also like that stuck-up Pharisee. If only he would believe. You see, that's the part of the story we're not told, are we? We don't know the end of Simon's story. The woman goes home with the Savior's blessed assurance. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. What happened to Simon? Don't know. Did he get down on his knees? Did he at some point confess his sins and express faith in the Savior Jesus? Don't know the end of his story. What is the end of your story? Have you gotten down on your knees and expressed and confessed your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the only way for you and I to be forgiven all our sins, including also those sins against the sixth commandment. And it's the only way to begin to do good to all, even to our enemies. For it doesn't take much to realize that we have all, all of us, to a man, have many, many failings and sins against this commandment, as well as the others. Sins against the sixth commandment, you've got them, right? Sins of even long ago, in some cases, that run deep. There may even be people we have scorned in our hearts or held grudges against who are no longer around for us to ask forgiveness of and make it right with. And when that happens, the feeling of guilt in our heart just gets greater. So then you need to know, and I need to know, brothers and sisters, this gospel that Jesus, your Savior, obeyed this commandment perfectly on your behalf. Jesus never held a grudge, and He did it for you. 
He never hated anybody as his personal enemy, and he did it in your stead. He dishonored nobody, but always was patient, always was filled with peace, always was gentle and merciful and friendly to the full extent of the Father's command. And if he was angry, which he did get a couple of times, it was always a righteous anger, and it never lasted that long. And in the end, Jesus sacrificed his very life and He underwent and suffered His Father's eternal wrath against all your sins and all my sins, including every failure against the Sixth Commandment. All those failures have been paid for, beloved. Your guilt is gone in Christ. Grab hold of it through repentance and faith. And then go filled with the Spirit of Christ, whom He gives to you freely, and be at peace with everybody, every neighbor, as far as you are able to do. That's what Paul writes in Romans 12. Pray that you would be at peace with every neighbor, as far as you are able. Pray for those neighbors who are angry with you for some reason. If they've got a grudge against you that you can't somehow overcome, pray for them. Let the grudges that you might have and the hard feelings that might be inside of you and the bitterness that may be there, let all those things evaporate. Evaporate out of your heart and be reconciled with those people you've had problems with or tensions with. Care for all of God's creatures. Doubly so for the creatures made in His image, our fellow humans, and make it a point to do good even to those who have done you wrong. Jesus did good to you and to me when all that you and I did to Him was wrong. So now go and do likewise. Amen. Mm -hmm.